It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I'm here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by an author we are extremely excited to talk about because she did one of those incredible projects where she excavated a piece of history that everybody else wanted us to forget. Her book is called Mutinous Women, How French Convicts Became the Founding Mothers of the Gulf Coast. Joan Dijon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much to both of you for having me on. I'm, this is the, you're great to talk to about this. <laughs> thank you so much. So like, I don't know anything about this. I literally was yes. like, what? I what? didn't know this at all. So set this up. Um, in 1719, a ship called Le Mutine, uh, they they had an all female um, cargo carrying unique cargo, which is all female roster of deportees to the future United States. So tell us how this came about. How did they end up on this ship? And, okay. Yeah. And then and then set set the rest up for this because this I I didn't know anything it's about this. I didn't know anything about this history and how it relates to New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. Okay, and to a lot of the rest of the country too, by the way. Um, this 1719 in Paris, is a, it was an incredibly chaotic time. The country was bankrupt, there was famine, there was extraordinary poverty. And in this backdrop, you know that in times of financial upheaval, wild financial upheaval, women are often victims. And this was certainly the case in 1719 in Paris. We can talk more about any of this that interests you. Mm -hmm. they, all of a sudden, the French decided that they needed money. They would get money by developing quickly a colony they hadn't paid much attention to in the first 20 years of its existence, that entire enormous French colony they called Louisiana. It's the whole Gulf Coast, including northern Florida, it goes all the way up the Mississippi Valley, virtually to the East Coast and the Carolinas, north into part, west into part of Texas today. It's big. This is mm -hmm. a huge thing. They're very, it's almost unpopulated, and there are almost no women. So they decide they want women fast. And what do they do? The biggest part of the group sent over were arrested at the last minute in Paris because they wanted colonists. And the women who ended up this way were essentially the kind of women we don't know about in history in general. And we certainly don't know about in this country's history. They were poor women working women in Paris. They worked as seamstresses. They worked as laundresses. They went into big households and they washed dishes all day long. Then when they walked out on the streets, they were vulnerable. They were arrested. They were also in large part women who stuck up for themselves. When they were unjustly arrested, they said, no, I wasn't there. I didn't do that. Ask so-and-so. And the police hated this because it gave them trouble. They were supposed to investigate, so they didn't. They just locked them up. Then they chained them to a group of them together at the waist, shipped them off in carts to the coast, and chained them in the hold of a ship and sent them over to the Gulf Coast. 
So the story that they're telling is that all of these working class women in Paris just decided to like up and commit crimes, largely of prostitution. Yes. Like all on the same day. So they just stuck them all on this boat and shipped them off. Like, I know from our history that we tended to call any problematic woman a prostitute. In fact, the legal definition of prostitution used to be like anything you wanted it to be. You could wear pants and you could be legally called a prostitute. You could, was it, was it similar in France? Like was prostitution just sort of a generalized charge that they leveled at any woman they wanted to put away for whatever reason they wanted to put her away? This is a great question. As a matter of fact, in France, prostitution has no definition at awesome. the period. What? This is the moment when I found <laughs> it all of a sudden appearing in police records. I've traced police. I read 20 years of every police record, Thank every you. arrest <laughs> in Paris. I know you have to, you have to be crazy, but my, you know, I wanted to see what was going on. I had never seen the word. I wanted to see if I was being correct. 1700 to 1720, all of a sudden, 17, 18 and 19, prostitution starts being used. And it meant anything in the world, but it's a new word. So it's the beginning wow. of that crazy history of using prostitution as a, a, a catch-all for any woman you wanted to get rid of or put behind bars. Wow. <laughs> yep. I, mean, I don't even no have a legal definition. There that's was no crazy. Legal, there was no definition. Yes. Nobody cared. Nobody it was not asked. about selling sex for money. It was no. about anything you wanted it to be. Absolutely. Oh. I you kept I kept just kept finding it on records. My one of my favorite ones for the obviously I'm being here, I'm I'm joking. Oh yes. Six-year-old girl oh, God. was on the list labeled one of the biggest prostitutes. Oh my God. She was an Irish kid. A group of Irish girls had come over to Paris. They didn't speak a word of French, as the police admitted. They just probably the Protestants were in power in Ireland. They wanted to be in a Catholic country. They came over, arrest them all together and label them all prostitutes. Wow. So it was whatever you wanted. When a family, a poor family, and this happened too, it was one of my great great sadnesses in this book when a poor family had too many kids too many mouths to feel you both feed you both know daughters are the ones who go mm -hmm. and so they would announce to the police that the daughter was causing great trouble she was threatening their lives etc the police just labeled her a prostitute wow later on some of them changed their minds when they learned at the last minute what was happening to these daughters they had caused, mm -hmm. called all these names, they said, oh, no, she didn't do very much, but it was too late. So what, okay, just... what, what happens when you put a bunch of like wrongly accused women on a ship together and send them to a new world? Like, does that go well? <laughs> well, well, I, I imagine that in the cross can you imagine the crossing chain no. in the hold like this and they have it's an all-male uh, crew of course there's not a single woman on board to to be there as a to protect them in any way there was enough food barely for the crew i doubt that they were giving them any food or much food at all down there they get through they get there and then it's they keep bouncing they've been labeled prostitutes and quote dangerous criminals so nobody wants them 
They throw them off an island that has some housing. They don't want them on the mainland. They end up leaving them, depositing them on a barrier island off of what is now the coast of Mississippi in late February. No tents, no blankets, no fresh water, no food. I don't know how they survived that. Eventually, that someone said, oh, God, we've got to do something with them. They had no plans. There's no prison to put them in. Unlike Paris, they don't have one there. They just put them on shore and deposit them on the beach. And then is what when you put a group of women together who've been wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, etc., somehow those who survived found the courage to go on, and boy, did they go on. So, so when they get to the Gulf Coast, and we're talking about like Louisiana, Mississippi, um, I guess that's Alabama. Alabama. Um, mm -hmm. What what conditions are they met with, like when they get here, and and how how do they navigate and survive, um, basically coming here with nothing and and okay. arriving in a completely new place. Okay, the d different things. In Mobile, which is now Alabama, of course, there was a fort, there was already a garrison. So some of them went there and they married soldiers, some of them married officers, most of them married very quickly, they had to, and they married very well. And in Mobile, they, they really, they helped found the place that became Mobile by creating families, by creating a community. Those of them, they went, some of them went really far. I don't know how they managed it. One of them ends up in what is now a mountainous region in Arkansas. Very wow. quickly, she's married and she, her husband is, is a fur trader trading with indigenous peoples in Arkansas. So, and they're living, you know, in canoes all the time, virtually isolated from any Europeans. A couple make it all the way up to Illinois. And they help create the first wheat fields in this country. Um, the biggest group of them made it to a place we now know as New Orleans. But New Orleans, when they got there, the name wasn't fixed. The city was, they had begun to clear a little land. They didn't know if it would really be the city or the capital or not. They needed a new capital for all this. When that New Orleans, became what we think of as New Orleans, a bunch of these women were living there and they helped, literally helped build it. It sounds a little like the, the story of the American West that we never, we never hear that like when they, when they eventually realize there aren't enough women out there and they, they ship a bunch of women out there and they turn into like the proprietors. Like we, we all try to pretend that it was just, you know, brothels that they were running, but they were they were the mayors. They were in charge of the money in in the towns. They, they like there was a whole story there about women colonizing the West that like doesn't ever get told. And it sounds like it sounds like a lot of this country is actually erasing that particular part of settlement. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know why that's true, right? Hmm. I wonder I, why. I, I think. Well, I know I can say we can all say <laughs> that, but also truly, it's not often recoverable. Right. Poor people leave fewer records. The, my, their luck, my luck, was that because of all these false arrests, the police records in Paris were good. So they, files were kept. And because of this little thing called the French Revolution of 1789, the revolution hated the monarchy. So they believed that the monarchy's record 
of arrests should be preserved. So they, when they destroyed the Bastille prison, they immediately took all those massive records and they moved them to the closest place which was became was a private library. Then it became one of the first public libraries, and that's where I read them. It's across the street from the old Bastille, and they're all there. And so, because they're there, poor women, you understand, are in the record. And right. I can see who, how, the, what they said to the police. Can you imagine the courage of someone who's illiterate? She walks around selling vegetables on the streets, carrying huge loads on her body. And they say she did something. She says, no, I wasn't there. It takes a lot of guts to talk back like this. And so those kinds of women, she was one of the women in New Orleans. That's why I'm thinking of her. They can be written into the record of this country because of the police presence. The but idea why? of New Orleans being founded by melty women makes me so happy, I can't even tell you. <laughs> me too, yeah. because, well, you know, they know about, we have all the aristocratic names of the streets and everything. This young woman, Manon Fontaine, married a blacksmith. Now, blacksmiths are tough too, and she was a tough lady. She had, you know, walked all day long, carried stuff. They cleared land together, and they were little homes, modest homes, when she died. She owned five and a half lots in what is now the French Quarter of New Orleans. I mean, this is so cool. Okay, so <laughs> when when they are here, um, you know, trying to to get settled, you said they they a lot of them got married because they had to. Um, how does that evolve into some of the cultural things that we associate with this part of the country? Because there, I mean, the Gulf, when, when you say New Orleans, when you say the Gulf Coast, that's, I'm thinking music, specific music, food, um, clothing. Um, There's so many different unique things about that part of the country that obviously were influenced um, by people who were coming from France (laughs) and not just the, the street names. Um, Talk about how how they brought sort of how they brought that piece of their culture and and how that manifests into what we see in um, in the Gulf now. Okay, that's a lovely question. One of the things I tried to do was trace where they came from in France. Mm. They were arrested in Paris, but many of them had ended up in Paris because of the poverty at the moment. You people always flee the countryside and go to a city hoping life will be better that there'll be more food in the city. So there were people from all over France. So all these different traditions, uh, I'm thinking food, ended up in Paris. Mm. When one of the women died, for example, and the, what I can, what you have are often when they die or when they remarry, when their husbands die and they remarry, they made lists of their possessions, what they owned. They were so proud, right? These women mm-hmm. who had nothing had amassed all this. One of them had specific kinds of copper pans to make pies that were a specialty of her region of France. Wow. Now, she had managed to get these. You realize that was probably worth more than a chair, but she was making her regional food. Mm. So they all brought that regional food 
into this big mixing pot that was New Orleans. In addition, there was certainly music too. One of my favorite women married a guy who was the, the um, drummer of his regiment and they lived on Bourbon Street. Can you imagine a drummer on Bourbon Street already <laughs> in 1720? It's not bad. Wow. <laughs> so they're bringing music, they're bringing food, they're bringing their clothing. They also always listed when they had any possession, they listed where the cloth came from. And they listed the colors and the patterns. One of them had been a seamstress in Paris. She had been um, an apprentice seamstress. She made clothes for her, her husband. He was not a wealthy man, but he was dressed in blue and yellow stripes, in blue and yellow checks. I mean, these, these people had a sense of style, too, brought there from their past. I mean, and like, of course, like New Orleans is like no other part of the country. Like there's, it's, 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 it's its own culture. It's so vibrant. It's so different. Of course, it has a founding story that is unlike any other coastal founding in America. My question is about your research. Like what is, every time we have an author on who has unearthed some absurd thing that never should have been lost to history, you know, the, the, four, the teenagers who fought the Nazis, like that kind of stuff. It's, it's always like, my question is like, what, where did you start and how long did it take? What is it like excavating an enormous piece of history like this that has been purposefully buried? Like, what was your process? Well, it was pretty simple in a way. <laughs> um, one day I was digging, I was looking for someone, I don't even remember why, who had been arrested in 1719 and whose name began in F. And I came across this, the file of this woman who with her blacksmith husband, Manon Fontaine is her name, built, had all the lots in New Orleans. And the cover was labeled, we had her name on it, and it was labeled, and other female prisoners mm. for the islands. And the French thought the islands, Louisiana was an island at that time, the colony. I just opened it because I thought that was very strange. And I immediately realized it was Louisiana. And I was born in Southwest Louisiana. So my curiosity was peaked. And I have to tell you, this might have been a decade of digging. I mean, just reading yeah. all those files. There were days when once one of the archivists said, go home. <laughs> you look so tired. But I kept saying, no, I can't give up. You know, they, yeah. they, I, if I, if you give up, I might lose a thread and do it. So it was there. What happened was, I think, that the only people who have seen this file before me believed the police. And the wow. police wrote, you see, there was in the margin, yeah. you had the accusations. And so the woman I'm telling you about was accused of having murdered 15 men. Oh, my. Yeah. That's so people have her down. When she appears in a book, she, is a she appears as Manon Fontaine, who murdered 15 men. Oof. So nobody cares about her. In fact, she was this incredible woman. When she died in New Orleans in 1734, she wrote one of the most beautiful wills I've ever seen. Wow. She gave her, she left everything to her friends. She said, so-and-so lent me money during my last illness. She paid every debt. 
aristocrats in Paris never paid their debt. She paid <laughs> everything. And the, she had gathered a group of friends to be witnesses at her will. And they all called her dumb lady. So she was a person of great respect, of a valued member of the community. And I think that's a pretty great story. Oh, to yeah. Have a, Truly. accomplished so and i wanted to add just one thing i think new orleans is a unique unique place too and i wondered after reading this if that fact that it had such a, an important play, group of women it's a women's city i mean it does feel like that it feels very maternal like like new orleans feels like a I don't know, a place that would have first grandmothers. <laughs> well, it did right. have first grandmothers. And some of these women, by the way, guys, had so, they had lots of children. The children had lots of children. Every day this week since the book appeared, I've received an email from someone in some, I mean, they've been from DC, they've been from New Jersey, they've been from uh, Arkansas, they've been from North Carolina, they've been all over saying, I'm a descendant of so-and-so. So That has to be so validating for you. Like how many years of research was a decade of research? Going yeah, I'd guess something like a decade. And, yes. and you're telling family histories to families that don't even know them. And truly like, they could what be- What a gift. They could be anywhere. I want people, I'm so grateful to you two for highlighting this because we should know about women who yeah. were important in this country's early history, especially since they were great women. They were nothing <laughs> to be ashamed of, on the contrary. And people should realize from they could be anywhere. It's not just a local story. They're all over the country now, the descendants of these women. And that's pretty wonderful, I think. You should know if you have a great ancestor. Yes. How do I find out? Wait, where, how do we find out? Where, you, I, I, gotta I did not do com. <laughs> Genealogy was beyond me, but if you can check names, you see there are lots oh, of names. Yeah. Yeah, the person, yeah. some people know already. Okay, I'll give you one. My favorite email of the week was from someone who in Northern Virginia, who is a double descendant. He already knew about his paternal line, and he found the name, and he found therefore the woman. In that line. Uh, but he found, but he in his maternal line, he had a name of a woman. And he found her name and her story in Paris in the book. That is just, I mean, being able, and now like they can tell their kids about and like of course he had the paternal line, but had lost the maternal line. Like we we buried these stories and we did it on purpose because it totally flew in the face of like you know, the great individualist, rugged wilderness, like we, you know, we wanted to tell stories about men doing heroic men things in the untamed wilderness. And, and in order to tell that story, we had to like burn down really great, accurate things that actually mm -hmm. happened that undermined the idea that like only white men can do this. <laughs> no question about it. That, you know, because they, even now, every one of these places is a story of certain men. And right. they were in so many places all over. Um, they were there 
performing next to their husbands, building houses with their husbands, um, meeting the people, doing, you know, forming groups. One group in New Orleans, they were sick of it. Louisiana was a poorly managed colony. This is their only, only crime they committed in all their years there. <laughs> two, two of them got together in secret, a group of 40 co-conspirators. They managed to get the head of the garrison in Mobile. They got a boat. They got ammunition, they got soldiers, and they got a group of people ready to flee the colony. They wanted to sail to the Carolinas, which were wealthier. So they were capable of political action, too. I, mean, I sometimes thought if France had had the guts to keep them, they mm -hmm. might have been able to do something there. But thank God they did something here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, can we just put out a beacon? Like, I, I want all of your mouthy women. You don't want to deal with them? Send them here. Send them yes. here. <laughs> yes, exactly. The people who, the women who are so independent that they say to the police, no, you're lying. Uh, and the police, of course, then clamp down on them, but put them on a boat. Yeah, man. Well, um, I know we have a few months until Christmas, but I'm going to have to put this on a few <laughs> yep. lists before then. <laughs> the book is Mutinous Women, How French Convicts Became Founding Mothers of the Gulf Coast. And Joan Dijon, I just want to like, thank you. Thank you for yes. doing this. This is a public service that you yes. have done. <laughs> well, thank you too so much. I was so looking forward to talking to you because I, I had a feeling you'd get it. Yes, you no, this is, this is such you. our jam. We love it yes. so much. We're so excited. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank th you Joe. Thanks for all your good work of causes like this. Thank you so much. Have an excellent rest of your day. And I you hope your too. next decade is easier than the oh, last one. Well, yes, easier <laughs> is one thing. I promise you I won't be in the prison files, but I'm happy. <laughs> thank you Joe both. Jean, thank you so much. Welcome back to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I am here with Julita Maxwell on this Monday, April 25th, and we actually have some, some personal news, as, as they say in the industry. And um, it's sad and it's strange, but it's also exciting. And I, I, I wanted to share it with this community that we have built. And that is that this is my last week on Signal Boost in the mornings. Um, and I'm, I'm a little emotional about it. I'm a lot emotional about it, actually. But I love that we've been having this conversation the whole time in real time with you. <laughs> and this is just a part of it. Everyone is deciding right now what's right for them in this moment, their, you know, their priorities, their families, their, their careers, their mental health. And, and I've decided that what's right for me right now is to focus on this, this successful business that I've been building for the last eight years, when, when I'm done with this show in the morning, I get to help some truly outstanding candidates and organizations and just, just good people <laughs> fight culture wars and, and win elections. And the next few months are like literally the most important that I have seen in the 15 plus years I've been doing this. And the world is coming back to IRL and the person who woke up in Red Hook at four to commute 90 minutes to Times Square was, well, she was younger than the person that I am now. <laughs> and frankly, staring down the barrel of these midterms, like I can't afford to burn out. So 
Zerlina and I, I mean, we created Signal Boost five years ago um, in the wake of Donald Trump. And I am just so supremely proud of the space that we've created for people to be where they are in the mm -hmm. last few years and the conversations that we've been able to have. Um, I think we brought something really, really special to our audience and I to agree. the national conversation as a whole. And, you know, our partnership doesn't end. It, it no, we're not ends. breaking up. Like, so I just want to be <laughs> clear. All. I want to be clear. We're not breaking up. Um, nope. <laughs> and, and, I, and I also want to say that, like, creating this space. Remember when we had uh, the guest on recently who talked about creating a unicorn space? I really feel strongly yes. that that's what we've done here. And we shared a cubicle yes. in the campaign in 2016. So this idea was born out of a shared cubicle in yeah. um, Brooklyn headquarters. Um, <laughs> and it was actually... The, the idea really was before we lost the election, we mm -hmm. we were just thinking about maybe doing some sort of feminist newsletter post-election yep. because we weren't, you know, we wanted to amplify each other's work. I wasn't trying to go to the White House. Like, it wasn't that wasn't what mm -hmm. I was doing uh, there. So we were like, we should, you know, do this newsletter. Then we lost. And it was right. like, oh, we need this newsletter. This newsletter needs to be the voice of the resistance. This newsletter needs to be sort of the yeah. space where you can go and get your marching orders. Um, the channel, I think, um, was the perfect place for, for Signal Boost. We started Absolutely. out on Saturdays, if you guys recall. Yeah. And we went to noon um, and then became the morning show when um, our bosses here at Sirius um, approached us and asked us to, to move. And as non-morning people, uh, we were like, what? We can do um, this. We can do this. <laughs> Um, but I do we think I, I do share, um, the feeling that you have of pride in creating this space that not just, you know, um, is the unicorn space that we can have real and honest conversations between a black woman and a white woman, mm -hmm. um, and a, well, you're Latinx also, but, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> I, got, you know, I, I can say multitudes. <laughs> yes. But, but, but the idea that we can have really, truly honest conversations across race and, um, experience, um, and I don't know, make people think about things yeah. in a little bit of a different way. That's always been part of my goal, um, yes. in media. And I think we've created a space that has been a catalyst for that. I'm also really proud of the guests we've had. Oh, we've God. had some of the best bookings of any show on air, television, radio, anywhere, podcast, doesn't matter. We can book yep. better guests than most of the people in the media landscape. And I'm proud of that. And the reason why is because of the content we bring every single day, you know, when, when guests approach us, especially bigger guests, they're like, we love you. Our staff loves yeah. you. They listen to you. Um, and so that's always been a source of pride. Um, so I for think us. you'll probably hear our voices together again on Sirius at some yes. point. We're talking about some, some election coverage. Um, I'm still very much in the family. I love Sirius progress. I love the channel. I, you know, I, I love the audience. I love the activist base of the audience. So we're still talking about that. We're going to work on some writing together. We were partnering before this show, and we will continue. Um, we will continue in whatever iteration it comes next. But I, I do think these conversations need to exist in the world, and we're going to find spaces in order in order to make that happen. But we're not leaving you alone in the mornings. No, I'm going to be here. I'm still waking up with you guys, even though, oh, yes. as I said, <laughs> you know, not naturally inclined to wake up at six, but um, but have have learned to do it. Not not necessarily yeah. enjoy it, but learn to do it, and and you know, take I've taken pride in the fact that um, the first thing a lot of people are hearing 
and I'm yeah. setting everybody up for the day. So mornings with Zerlina, period. Yes. <laughs> Just like yes. my Peacock show, Zerlina, period, um, is starting next Monday. Um, and it will be the same this the same time slot um, as Signal Boost. And Jess will be back. It's not like Jess is oh, going yeah. anywhere. No, I no. like to talk to Jess. <laughs> I very much still like Jess. <laughs> and I don't know what friends. I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna like sit We're and friends. talk to myself for two hours. I know. Like... Trying to manage my thoughts, I'll just be texting you during the show. <laughs> no, exactly. We're just gonna have a very ferocious text situation, um, which we, but... we already do. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. It'll just be like exponential, uh, yep. exponential growth on that front. But I think that it'll be um, a little bit more um, of a, a space where. Um, you can engage with me in the morning. I'm going yeah, to make sure we have fun. space for, for calls. Um, if you've been at home itching to, to talk um, to us over the phone, um, that is going to begin next week as well. So Mornings so with Zerlina is going to be yeah. the new morning show. And Signal Boost is, ugh, it's yeah. always going to be something. I feel like it's the it's kind of thing be where... Something. I need to make it like a monument, like a plaque and like hang it up because <laughs> it's a it's a thing like it. Yeah. it, it we we I mean, it was half born out of We've the been defeat. doing this for half a decade. <laughs> it was born out of the defeat and the in the the grief and the trauma of 2016. And it became this beautiful thing. Yeah. And that's I mean, that's because of the, the friendship and the foundation that we have. And it's also because of, of every single person who tunes in. Every morning. And I love hearing from all of you. I love hearing from you on Twitter. I love being able to talk to you and start our day this way. And I will I will miss it dearly. But, you know, thank you so much for being on this ride with us. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening.